When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at emerging markets, and my guest is the economist Lord Jim O'Neill, who created the famous economic acronyms BRIC and MINT. He's a former UK Treasury Minister and a former Chief Economist for Goldman Sachs. He's currently the chairman of the think tank Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks, Nicola. Nice to be with you. Let's start with definitions. What do we mean by emerging markets? It is still used in a way to describe so many countries that generally speak generally speaking don't have the same uh wealth as those of the the more advanced world and so what do they actually mean brick and mint what do they stand for so the brick uh acronym stands for brazil russia india china and the 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 broad concept or the broad sort of philosophy behind why i dreamt it up was those four countries were increasingly becoming relevant parts of the world economy and society and uh, global governance that I thought they needed to be thought about differently. And, And after a couple of years of its existence, when people would quiz me, why them and why not others... I ended up uh, specifically trying to narrow it down that that any country that was more than 3% of global GDP or had the clear potential to be shouldn't be regarded as a normal emerging market. What do you think of the emerging markets now then? Because obviously people refer to China as emerging, but um, presumably that's a a bit of a misnomer now. I I think it's um, quite bizarre, really. If If you look at China per se, I mean, China is twice the size of the other BRIC countries put together. You know, it's a $15 trillion economy. And and even though in 2019, the year before we had COVID, 
China reported its slowest economic growth rate for, I think, 29 years of just around 6%. It was still, because of the size of its base from the previous year, it was still equivalent to creating another India within another two years or another United Kingdom within another two years. So, uh, and there's, there's hardly any major global economic area that China isn't a major player. Well, you just touched on China and the 21st century is being talked about as the, the sort of Chinese century, both politically and economically. So how has China achieved this meteoric rise? I think we're all trying to find out the, the answer to that question uh, still. It, it is truly remarkable. I, I could bore your listeners for hours with all sorts of anecdotes about the, the nature and quite unparalleled rise of China. I would suggest at the core it's because there is a sort of common subtle linkage between the Chinese leadership, albeit obviously a, a single party state and their people, the the, the, the sort of persistence of, of, of China's version of communism in the in the style in which it operates is allowed and accepted by the people so long as it delivers rising living standards. And I, I think that's at the core of it. The Chinese authorities have a very clear uh, view of what they want each of the next five-year periods in the future to be like. And in a way, even though they often miss them precisely, it sort of, in a strange way, holds them to account with their people. Each week we look at a historical example of this episode's theme, and in this case, emerging markets. The huge potential of emerging markets has captured our imagination, and in recent times, Western economies have looked at them in envy, as some have reported double-digit economic growth. But this isn't the first time that BRIC countries like India have led global growth. And for example, China, which as we've just heard, is a growing economic powerhouse, it has previously occupied the top table when it comes to being a heavyweight. My producer, Lovejeet Daliwal, has been delving into the history books to a thousand years ago, when China was ruled by dynasties. While much of Europe was warring with each other during the medieval period, China emerged as one of the most prosperous and advanced economies in the world. The Song dynasty began in the year 960, and it was a time of cheer and technological innovation. Improved farming techniques dramatically increased agricultural output, and growth was so plentiful that farmers were able to harvest their produce twice a year. The Song government was the first in the world to issue banknotes, and it's also where there was the first known use of gunpowder. The seas were busy as China's first permanent navy was established, and trading ships exchanged goods of silk, jade and porcelain with the likes of India and Java. Trade also grew at home. Unlike previous dynasties, cities were less rigidly controlled and markets were no longer held on fixed days. Commerce and city life were much freer. Merchant networks spread. Villages moved away from self-sufficiency towards a cash economy and the money supply increased by 30 times. With the invention of printing, the need for paper was ever more urgent, and the industry took off, feeding into demand for literature. Farmers, merchants, silk workers and countless other industries thrived, and ordinary people were not to be left out. As the price of porcelain had come down, many people in China replaced their earthenware cups and plates with porcelain ones, 
and luckily for them, improved firing techniques meant that they had the best porcelain that money could buy. The Chinese economy was one of the most sophisticated and richest in the world at this time. It was truly a superpower. So, Jim, why was China able to forge ahead at that time? Do you think? <laughs> I'm not good enough historian to know the answer to that. I, I, it sounds, and from the little I have read about it, is there was some kind of purpose to to what was driving them, and and the kind of divisions that. Perhaps came as a consequence, and many others that then followed and caused China, and until、uh, the nineteen eighties, to be one of the weakest economies for a country of its size in the world. You know, took over. But it's quite a, an important salutary lesson, and it's an interesting part of the whole longer term story for you to focus on because it. It shows that we obviously shouldn't take anything for granted with the、uh, the, the sort of per- perceived、um, stability of a model for any one part of the world or nation. Is Africa likely to be the next big economic powerhouse given its young population? If Africa was serious about trying to pursue、uh, much closer trade integration between itself and and pursue seriously the idea of a free trade zone, which is something that is being focused on. At, At the moment, then the potential for Africa is huge because they have got in many parts of Africa fantastic demographics. But of particular interest is, of course, Nigeria, Africa's most largely populated nation. And if that peculiar, complex place were to be able to stay together as one country itself by 2050, it will it could have a bigger population than the U.S. And if Nigeria were to ever discover Uh, Productivity-enhancing reforms, then the potential there is absolutely spectacular. And also, didn't your bricks used to have an S on for South Africa? What's happened to South Africa? So South Africa,、uh, rather amusingly and cleverly in their in their sense, became part of the BRICS political club. It was never much to the irritation of a lot of South African policymakers and important people. Uh, something that I regarded as as worthy as being part of the economic club. It's a it's a relatively tiny economy. Well, the B stands for Brazil, and、um, and their growth seems to have moved away from commodities towards agriculture. Do you think it's possible for its economy to continue to grow without destroying the environment? Brazil and Russia have both had a spectacularly disappointing second decade. The dilemma for them both, and Brazil perhaps exhibits it exhibits it even more. Than Russia, is that they they suffer from the so-called commodities curse, and、uh, they they're too reliant on rising commodity prices that that, that when they happen,、uh, end up allowing all sorts of bad practices to happen. And as we've seen repeatedly in Brazil the last decade, all sorts of problems emerge、uh, when commodity prices come down. And and this is irrelevant of the environmental issue. This is a problem for them. With certain agricultural commodities too, and, and Russia desperately needs to、uh, wean itself off excessive dependency on energy. We haven't mentioned Mexico and Turkey. Is there anything we should be looking out for in those countries?、Uh, you know, Mexico arguably has the same commodities curse problem. Somehow they've got to get to deal with that, and with it,、uh, reduce the scale of, of corruption and the informal economy that, that dominates that country. Of the, of the four so-called mint countries, Indonesia would be the one I think, as we creep through time, 
is proving itself to be more resilient than the others. Uh, and that's despite the fact that that's uh, an economy where commodities are also pretty important for it. But if you look carefully at the past more tricky decade for the global commodity cycle, Indonesia, famous last words, because nothing ever stays the same, but Indonesia has not had anything like the sort of economic gyrations of the other mint countries, Turkey included. Uh, as for Turkey itself, uh, they, they have uh, a whole set of other challenges, but in particular, uh, their core one is, is just a very weak uh, domestic savings ratio. So they're always very dependent on foreign capital, which means when the global economic cycle uh, turns adversely, particularly in circumstances of rising interest rates, people become frightened very quickly about the risky capital they have in various parts of the world, and Turkey always suffers. Stat of the Week. Well, it's now time for our Stat of the Week. Each week, we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, our stat is gross national income per capita. And I thought we'd look at China's, which according to the World Bank in 2019, was $10,410. So Jim, what does this figure tell us? It tells us that on average, China's 1.3 billion people earn $10,000 a year. What lies below it is also in itself way more fascinating because there's enormous diversion China today probably has more than 300 million people that enjoy an average annual income of over $30,000 a year. Uh, And in fact, the same average annual income that the 63 or 64 million people that live in the United Kingdom. And just think about that. That's China has five times as many people earning the same average income as we in the UK. I think it has more billionaires in the world than anywhere other than the United States. And yet, at the same time, it still probably has a few tens of millions of people close to or in absolute poverty. Uh, To to make another comparison with India, India today is probably close to $2,000 a head. So the average Chinese person is five times wealthier than the average Indian person. That was Stat of the Week. And this week, we were looking at the gross national income per capita. So, Jim, what do you think are the countries, the BRIC countries, potentially, of the future? I'm afraid to say, Nicola, the BRIC countries of the future are Brazil, Russia, India and China. Ultimately, the size of a country's economic performance depends on two things. It's the number of people in a country's workforce and their productivity. And it's as simple and as difficult as that. And so with a possible exception of Indonesia, it is pretty difficult to think of any other so-called emerging market country that can be as big as these places. That doesn't mean to say there are not other emerging market countries that are interesting. And I I, I think for reasons we've touched on briefly, each of the so-called mint countries uh, are all very interesting. I think Vietnam is very interesting. I think in certain circumstances, other parts of Africa, Ethiopia, could be very interesting. Demographics, by definition, a place like Pakistan could be interesting. But these are places that have got enormous uh, challenges, by and large, about governance and introducing a system that will will 
lead to lasting productivity improvements. And without those, they will never have a chance of becoming important big economies. Jim O'Neill, thank you for coming onto the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review It's The Economy on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's The Economy, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Daliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.